Open your Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. We'll read the text of the day. And in reverence to God's Word, would you please stand with me as we read verse 16 and 17 only. Revelation 22, 16 and 17. Why don't we all read it aloud together, everyone, if you will. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And thank you and be seated, please. The visions that the Lord Jesus Christ and the angels showed to the Apostle John ended here with verse number 5 of chapter 22. Revelation 22 and 5 is the end of the, of the future visions that John had been seeing. In verse 6, we pick up with an ending section of the book an epilogue, if you will, an ending section, and in it are several lasts, L-A-S-T-S, lasts. What do I mean several different lasts? Well, today we're looking at the last invitation given in the Bible. That's That's the message this morning, the last invitation. And the next section of Scripture here is the last warning in the Bible the last warning, and we'll look at that in a week or two. And then there's one more last there. Down in verse number 20, there's the last promise, the last promise. So we're down to the last invitation, the last warning, and the last promise that the Lord gives to us in the book of Revelation. Some people say, if you'll do some research on this verse, that the first half of the verse is a response to verse 12. Look up to verse 12, and the Lord says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Behold, I come quickly. And so some say this is a response. In verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, Come, Lord Jesus. And let him that heareth say, Come, Lord Jesus. But in the middle of the verse, it abruptly changes. And let him that is a thirst not say come, but come. And so that definitively is an invitation. Now, I believe the whole verse is an invitation, frankly, and the last invitation in the Bible. You will see in that verse one of the great gospel words, one of the great gospel words, one of the words that we use when we preach the gospel of Christ, and that word is come. You see it three times in that verse. You might want to circle it in your Bible and write out there the last invitation somewhere in the margin because it says come, and then again it says and come, and for the third time, come. That word first rang out as an invitation when the Lord himself told Noah to make the ark and Noah made the ark and it was completed after 120 years of building. 
And the Lord himself went into the ark before Noah ever entered. And the Lord, I don't know if, how he observed the ark or what he did there, but then he comes to the door and he turns and looks at Noah and he says, Noah, come you and all your family into the ark that is now prepared for you. Come into the ark. We know that ark represented salvation. We know that everybody outside of that ark died and passed into eternity in the judgment of God. But we know that everybody inside that ark were saved. We know that ark represents Jesus Christ and his grace. In fact, the, Lord, the Bible talks about, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he landed high and dry, the old song says. Now, here's the last invitation. The first one is, Noah, you and all your family come into the ark, and you will be saved from the judgment of God upon a wicked generation. Now, in this passage, the whole Bible now has, has occurred, and we look at the last invitation. I want to give you about three points. Who is it that does the inviting? Who is it that extends the invitation? And then I want to ask, who is invited? Who are the invitees? Who gets the invitation? And then thirdly, I want to talk about the price of the invitation, the price of going to the event that we're invited to. Number one this morning, who extends the invitation? Who is it that is doing the inviting? And it's pretty clear, isn't it? Look at verse 17, and the Spirit says, come. The Spirit says, come. Listen to me. This is important that you understand and know this as a Christian about your faith. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the ministry and mission of the Holy Spirit of God to invite and to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his primary work today, that Jesus Christ invites, draw, or that the Holy Spirit, rather, invites and draws and brings people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, I don't think people get saved. Now, go keep your hand right there in Revelation, but go back to another of John's writings, the Gospel of John, the book of John, if you will, the one you're the most familiar with. And in John chapter 16, let's read, in fact, let's hear from the work, the very lips of our Lord himself, this primary ministry of the Holy Spirit of convicting and drawing and bringing people to a saving knowledge. And so in John chapter 16 and verse number seven, listen to the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, now look at that word, it has a capital C, doesn't it? It's deity. It refers, the comforter is the Holy Spirit. That's been defined elsewhere here. Jesus said, if I don't go back to heaven, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And then notice what he says. When he is come, here's his mission. This is what the comforter will do. He will reprove the world of sin. Now, my King James Bible says he will reprove the world of sin. 
You might circle that word reprove and, and elaborate on it a little bit more by writing there, he will convict the world of sin. Or another way to say it would, he will convince the world of its sin. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit brings a consciousness of sin. And why does he, how does he do that? He's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, emphasis upon holy. So if he is absolutely holy as he is, everything in this world tainted by sin is in contrast to him. All he has to do is show up and people can see how really sinful we are. He convicts or he convinces people of sin. And he does it when the gospel is preached. And boy, I have discovered that by experience in my 43 years of having this wonderful privilege of standing here and preaching to a, a great congregation of people that you can preach the simplest gospel message. You don't even have to mention a sin specifically by name. And you preach about the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt and lift him up. And you know what happens? People are sitting out there and the Holy Spirit is applying that to their heart. And he, by the contrast of his holiness itself, he is revealing to them how desperately they need the Savior. I have people sometimes say something like this. I've had it all several times in my ministry. Well, preacher, when you preach about whatever, I come to church, you just make me feel guilty. Now, I want you to listen to me. Don't anybody miss this. I don't make you feel guilty. You are guilty. <laughs> I'm not up here putting you on a guilt trip. You already know before you came in. But when you come in, do you know why I pray every week before I preach? Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want him to take control. I don't, you, can say, you can say one wrong word when you're up here, just an ill-chosen word, and grieve the Spirit of God. And, and you can almost sense him leave. And so I say, Lord, just take over. Take over my lips. Take over my body language. Take over my expressions. Uh, help me not to say something stupid, which I've done many, many times. But Lord, protect me from all that so that when I preach, the Holy Spirit is going to go back and forth across these aisles. And he's going to minister to people. And he's going to reprove them of their sin. He's going to show them their need. And here's some fellow sitting over here, and he's doing something. Some sin is dominating his life. And I'm not even talking about that. But boy, the Holy Spirit's just eating his lunch. I've seen that so many times. Fellow got convicted about something, wasn't even on the subject. Now listen, we live in a society that does everything it can to keep people from feeling guilty. And uh, one of the most famous psychiatrists, in America, he's, de he's deceased now, but his name was Carl Menninger. He established a big clinic out in Kansas. People who had deep-seated emotional and psychiatric problems would go out there, and Dr. Menninger was, was known across the whole world. He and his staff would help people, it seemed, that could get help nowhere else. And Menninger, though he was not, in the sense I would say, a born-again Christian, 
Dr. Carl Menninger wrote a book back in the 70s, Whatever Happened to Sin? Now, you wouldn't think a psychiatrist, a world-renowned psychiatrist, would be writing a book entitled Whatever Happened to Sin, but he did. You can still buy it on Amazon. And here was Menninger's point. In our culture, we've tried to minimize guilt in people, and in trying to minimize it, we've actually given them no way to deal with it. So now we tell them, look, you're not a sinner, you're sick. It's a disease of some kind. Or sometimes we tell them, look, you're not really a sinner, it's not your fault, It was where you went to school or it was the way you were reared or something like that. And we give them a way to blame shift and an out. And they never have to come to grips with what is really going on in their own heart. And Dr. Menninger's wonderful book, he said, in trying to avoid guilt, sometimes we inadvertently increase it and we make no provision for people to deal with it. We have an old saying that we say, don't we? Confession is what? Good for the what? Soul. Not the body, the soul, the deepest part of us, because all of us know all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all fallen short of the standard of God. And the Holy Spirit comes and the preacher's up here preaching the word of God, maybe on a different subject. Maybe it's not even an evangelistic message. But the preacher's preaching and the Holy Spirit was working and the Holy Spirit comes and puts his finger right on somebody's heart and said, listen, you need to deal with this issue in your life. And you know what? As Dr. Menninger said, there's nobody can take away the guilt except one. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And when a person comes with deep repentance in their heart, and faith, and falls down at the feet of the Savior, and says, oh, Lord Jesus, wash me, and make me whole, and make me clean. Do you know what happens? God removes that guilt, and forgives in the name, of, and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a, a Christian can find peace. We find peace and satisfaction in our souls at the foot of the cross. Boy, it's good news for people today. That's where we take our guilt. I'm preaching on Sunday nights for two or three weeks here on, this, on Joseph, the life of Joseph. And I was reading this week about Joseph now is exalted to be the king or the prime minister. He's living up there, ruling the nation. And suddenly he sees 11 fellows come through, the, or 10 fellows come through the door and he sees brothers. He recognizes them, but they have no idea who he is. And after two or three little situations with them, he brings them in the back room. They're down in Egypt wanting corn to feed their families up in Canaan where there's this drought. And he simply stands in front of them, and here's all he says. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Whoa. The air went out of the room that day. Believe me, they were terrified. They were terrified. Why were they terrified? He didn't say to them, look, you sorry bums, you sold me into slavery and I've been suffering for all these years. He didn't have to say that. The Holy Spirit, Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit put his hand on their hearts and said, listen, y'all are guilty. 
you are wrong in what you did to your brother. And they were terrified. And if today the Holy Spirit is working in your life as I stand here and preach this morning, hear me, the most important thing you can ever do in your life is get your life right with God. Get saved and get assurance of your salvation that there's no doubts. Get the peace and the satisfaction that only the Lord can bring. The Spirit says, come. Well, I spent more time on the Spirit here than I will be able to on the next one because the next one says, and the bride say, come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when we read the word bride, we think of the, the church. We think of the church when the Lord comes and all the churches, all the saved of all the ages are gathered together when everybody will there be together at the throne of God. And we call that the bride of Christ. This is not referring to that bride in my opinion. Now, somebody might differ with me, but I don't believe this is what it's talking about. And I'll tell you why. Go in your Bible back to chapter 21 with me, Revelation 21. And in context here, it tells us that the bride is someone else. Who is the bride? Generally, the bride is the saved of the ages. But here, the bride is heaven. Chapter 21 and verse number two, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he says the bride is the holy city, the New Jerusalem. Look at chapter two and verse nine. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vows full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, come here. I will show you the bride. Who's the bride? the lamb's wife, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me not the saved of all the ages, but the great city, the holy Jerusalem, the city that descends out of heaven from God and down to the earth at the end. And so the spirit says come, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, heaven itself, says there's a place for you in heaven if you've never yet received the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven, I preached just a week or two ago. Do you remember the message? I think it was on, on the telecast this morning. 1,400 miles in this direction. 1,400 miles in that direction. 1,400 miles in that direction. A 1,400-mile cube. Enough room there, I think, probably for everybody who ever lived in all of history. And Jesus said when he left the earth, I, behold, I go away to prepare a place for you. And Jesus has been preparing that place now for over 2,000 years. And it'll come down to the earth. And there's a place there, my friend, for you. There's a place there for me. There's a place there for every single person who will come and accept this last invitation. There's one more person that is doing the inviting. Chapter 22 and verse 17, again, please. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And who is he that heareth? Those who have heard and accepted the gospel already. That would be you and me. And the implication is we ought to be inviting people to the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves. All of us, Christians, God's people, believers, we ought to be inviting people to come to the Lord. 
I'm always standing up here urging you to witness for Christ. I'm always up here talking about soul winning. I'm always preaching and urging you to share the gospel with people. I have been urging you to invite people and get them to church. Over on the wall on each side, bring one. We started that emphasis uh, uh, almost a year ago now. We just set a goal. And the goal was everybody who is a member or who regularly attends here to bring one person over the next year. Do you remember that emphasis starting back there one year ago? And, that would, and, and, and we actually a little less than what our average attendance is, but everybody bring one this year. Find some unchurched or unsaved person and bring them with you and get them under the sound of the gospel and maybe we'll have an opportunity to bring them to faith in Christ. And you have done so well doing that. See, look back at verse 17. Let him that heareth say, come. And that's what I'm asking you to do. You hear, you come here and you hear the word. Go out now and say, come. And you've done so well. 1,349 people you have brought since last August, and we want to finish it up in four weeks from now. We got a little bit of a challenge here. Need, going to need about 30 people a week or more, but uh, we got some good days coming, and vacation's about over, and I want to remind you again to go out and say come to people. Say come. I want you to come to church with me so you can hear the gospel. We've had this thing this summer, summer search, and what is summer search? It is Monday night, we go out and do a little survey with people, and we ask them, can we come back and talk to you? Now, how many, the average Christian doesn't think anybody in his right mind would invite a stranger to come back and talk to him, but you're wrong. At this point, we've had 130 families say, come back and you can talk to me about the church and about the programs and about the Lord and about Christianity. 130, isn't that not, that's wonderful, folks. I think that deserves an applause. <laughs> I think that's what it's about. Go out into the highways and the hedges and the, and the fields and the lanes and the backwoods and go wherever. Go when it rains because every Monday night but two it's rained. But go in the rain and you know what? 130 people have said, and you're welcome to come back and talk to me about your church and your program and about the Lord Jesus. It's so important that we get a hold of that. Look at it again, verse 17, middle phrase, let him that heareth, that's you, those who have heard the gospel, let them say come to other people. So important. In the welcome every week, I urge, I, I try to really welcome first-time visitors that they know we want them here. And then, but it's largely up to you. I can't touch them all. And you're sitting out there beside them. And if you don't know that person beside you, how important is it in the light of Revelation 22, 17, that you warm up to them? that you get out of your internal mode and thinking about tomorrow or yesterday and your problems and, and your anticipations. Get out of self and think about that person sitting next to you that walked in these doors today and you don't know what burdens are on their shoulders. You don't know what is in their heart. 
You don't know the needs, the issues they're dealing with in their life. Their heart may be breaking into a thousand pieces. It's so important that we be welcoming. It's so important that we show those people the love of Jesus, that they feel it in these services. Not some dried up, formal, cold thing, but also not something that's just jumping off the, 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 the extreme edges. But where the genuine love of Jesus is felt and touches people. I had a delightful visit in a home Monday night, as I do just about every Monday night. And these people just thrilled me. I didn't even want to leave. I wanted to keep talking to them because they told me how friendly, they, how, how welcomed they have been since they began to attend this church. That over and over and over, people have come up and said, we're glad to have you here and, sh- and have shaken their hands. Now listen, in the light of Revelation twenty two seventeen, every one of us have a personal responsibility to Jesus that we have heard, now we say, come to everybody outside, inside, everywhere we go. We don't ever forget the mission while we're here. Charles Spurgeon was walking in a London park. He said Hyde Park in London is a gathering of every kind of person in the world, nuts and fruits and and intelligent people and good people and bad people. It's kind of like one of these Central Park in New York, you know, where people get up on a soapbox and preach and all that. And Spurgeon said this real poorly dressed, unsophisticated man had a little box, looked like a shoe box. Said he put it in a certain spot and he got up on it. He rang a little bell to get attention. Few people stopped on the walking paths around him. Funny looking fellow, funny look out of his eye. Fellow got up on the box and Spurgeon said, he said, I ain't got no education, but I heard it and I got a right to tell it if I want to. And Spurgeon said, my soul. He he pulled out an old wrinkled up Bible and he started preaching the gospel and telling people how Jesus had saved him. And Spurgeon said, I was so embarrassed. He was so, inc- so crude. He just slaughtered the king's English. And I stood there watching this guy, and, I th- and I'm thinking, you ought to let somebody else do the talking fellow. You're embarrassing the king. And then Spurgeon said, the Holy Spirit came and convicted me. And he said, I thought, no. He should, Spurgeon said, if he heard it, he ought to tell it. And so ought everybody else that's heard it. I ain't got no education, but I heard it and I got a right to tell it if I want to. I like that spirit, don't you? How many of you have heard it? You've heard it? Okay, you're supposed to tell it. All those of you who've heard it say, come. But quickly, who is it that's invited? Who's invited? Look there in verse 13. The first word I see is the thirsty. The thirsty. If you thirst, then he says, come. Boy, this world is a wilderness this morning, isn't it? Its waters are so polluted, so stagnant cesspools are everywhere breeding the mosquitoes of the devil. This world is a dirty, vile place, and you know that. And sometimes we crave just a pure drink of the living water. 
Isaiah 55 and 1 says, Ho, everyone that thirst, come to the waters. Come and drink. Three times he says come. John chapter 7, verse 37. Would you turn back there with me? John chapter 7, verse 37. The Lord Jesus is at the feast in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus sees this big crowd milling around and in, in, in ways similar to this man in that park I just told you about, except with perfect dignity and, and intelligence, the Lord Jesus cries out. John seven thirty seven. in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, satisfaction, refreshment, joy is what he means. Salvation, that living water. Often when I talk to people, in fact, about two, within the last two or three weeks, I, I, I did this just recently. Someone sat in front of me in my desk their life is in turmoil. And I said, you know, what are you thirsting for? What are you thirsting for? Why would you think you can find satisfaction and joy and refreshment and meaning in the life that you're pursuing right now? Why would you think that? This world deceives, the devil's a deceiver, the world lies to us. My heart breaks for our young people, so many of them. They look for the living water in the party life. And they start partying and then they can't quit partying. And then their lives are scarred for life in some cases. You're not going to find any joy there. They look for, others of us look for satisfaction drinking the world's polluted water in a relationship. Oh, if I could just find the right man or the right woman or the right job or the right position. Or if I could just get the big house or the car or the savings account or whatever it is. If I could just accumulate this world's goods, then I'd find satisfaction. No. Mick Jagger had it right. You can't get no satisfaction. Not in this world. Not in this world. Not drinking at the devil's polluted pool. You're not going to get any satisfaction there. I mean, think with me. Just, just reason with me. Was it last week? This famous movie actor? They found him in a hotel room up here in Canada. Too much alcohol and too many drugs. 30 years old. His name, everybody knows, everybody in America knows his name but Bill Monroe. But anyway, that guy. And he's dead in that room. Overdosed. Why did he overdose? He's looking for something. All that money and all that fame obviously have not made him happy. Have not filled that empty space, that vacuum in his soul. He's chasing something. He's thirsty for something. And the devil deceived him, and he's, he died poisoned of the devil's polluted pool. And every week, it's, or every week or two, it's a, a rock star 
a movie star, the people you admire, some professional. It's a sports figure, an NFL guy, taking their own life, advertently or inadvertently. And they're thirsting for something, thirsting for something. There's an emptiness. My dad used to preach. He would say, the things of time cannot satisfy the heart that was made for eternity. The things of time cannot satisfy the heart that was made for eternity. A great theologian said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every man's soul. A God-shaped vacuum. You can't fill it up with booze or drugs or pleasure or possessions or money. It won't, they won't fit there. Jesus is what you were made for. Fellowship and relationship with God. If you're thirsty, come. Look secondly, whosoever will. Just in case everybody didn't hear, he throws it wide open for everybody. Wide open for everybody. And so the little child can come. Jesus said, suffer the little children. To come unto me, there's the word, to come unto me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of heaven. The great sinner, the sinner who has all kinds of baggage and garbage burdened down with the depth of their sins. But look at what Isaiah said, come now. There he begins it with that word come, the last invitation word. Let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, meaning blood, red, deep, red, I mean you have really drank the cup of sin to the depths. But in spite of that, your sins can be as white as snow. And though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come now, the last invitation. There's a widespread teaching going around. Kind of ebbs and flows. But here's the essence of it. God has elected certain people to go to heaven before they were ever born, before he ever even created the world, so the advocates say. And so he has selected or elected those people, and everybody else is just going to perish. And it's tough luck. I say, no, 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 no. What kind of loving God could consign people who never had an opportunity to hell? What, what kind of love is that? No. And I go to the, my Bible, my New Testament, and I begin to read it. And time after time and verse after verse and place after place, I keep seeing this one word pop up, whosoever, 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 whosoever. Did God lie? No, he threw open the door. Anybody can come. The little child, the great sinner, and everyone in between. The thief on the cross at the last minute of life can come. The last invitation, and you can come. And one other point I want to quickly make, what is the price? What is the price? And look at the last word in the verse. Let him come, what? Say it, freely, freely, freely. Now listen to me. Is everybody here listening to me? Don't ever forget this. 
Salvation is free, but it ain't cheap. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. You and I get to walk up to the cross and say, Lord, I repent of my sins and forgive me and come into my life and save me. And we get to go to heaven on a ticket that somebody else bought. But it cost the Lord Jesus the last drop of his red royal blood when he went to the cross and hung there and poured out his blood for our sins. And it's free to me, but it was not free to him. Like the mother who gives birth to the little child, and the mother suffers excruciating pain, sometimes going down into the valley, the very jaws of death itself. And yet that little baby is born and never feels that pain. And Jesus, in order that we could be born again, Jesus went to the cross and suffered hell for you and me. And now he says, come. Come, little child. Come, teenager. Come, in the prime of life. Come, old man, and come, old lady. You've lived your life, but you can still come to the cross. Come if you have a mound of sin up to heaven on your shoulders. Come, because where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Anybody can come. Now, let's make it practical for about two minutes. The last invitation in the Bible. There's a trend in the country, and the trend is don't have an invitation in a church. And more and more, churches no longer give what we call an altar call. And that, that's true across all denominational lines. Now, I read all the pastoral journals, stay up with this stuff, and the idea is people are too busy. They don't want to stand there at the end of the service while you're begging people. If they want to get saved, they'll do it on their own. And all kinds of logic like that. Just, this is the modern age. You've got to get with it, Brother Bill. Just don't, don't, don't hold people up every week. They're tired of singing just as I am. But how in the world could I stand here and preach what I preached to you this morning and say, bow your head, you're dismissed? No, 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 no. Do you know the last invitation in the Bible says to me, we ought to continue to always give the invitation. Jesus appealed to the crowds and he said, step out and follow me. In fact, he said, whosoever is ashamed of me and you won't step out, I'll be ashamed of you on the judgment day. So he put a strong emphasis on a public profession, a public invitation, if you will. Peter stood at Pentecost on the street corner in Jerusalem, preached the gospel to people who had crucified Jesus six weeks before, 40 days before. And when he gave the appeal, 3,000 people stepped out and followed the Lord in baptism that day. In Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist holds a great meeting in Samaria, and he preaches the gospel, and people come to the Savior. They step out. In the modern era, George Whitefield, in the early days of our country, would preach the gospel to crowds of up to 20,000 people in a field. He preached over here up and down our coast. And Whitefield would say to the people, now, if you've heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit has 
convicted you, then he said, I will stand over here to the side and you come and gather around and I'll talk to you individually, personally. It may take all day and in those days they had more time, but Whitefield would speak to the people and talk to them in small groups or individually. Charles Finney was a lawyer turned preacher, great evangelist, and he put down in front what he called the anxious seat. And can you believe people would do this? They wouldn't do it today, I don't think, but maybe they would under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. A man would come and sit in the anxious seat because he was so convicted of his sins. He just, but he couldn't quite break through and feel like he could get to God. And so he would come and sit here in front of the congregation looking at him, thousands of people, and they would all stop and pray for that man sitting in the anxious seat until he could come to faith in Christ. He also was the first one who had what he called the mourner's bench, which is the equivalent of our altar where people come and kneel. Charles Spurgeon would invite people to go down into the basement under the church where they had lecture rooms and his staff would go there and meet with people in small groups of five or six people each. Today, people come forward in our church. And if we need to instruct them, we take them out here and we go through the door and we have what we call the prayer room. And we have somebody who we've trained to be able to sit and talk with them and pray with them and answer their questions. I I would not feel good if I went home and sat down and ate my roast beef today or whatever. And while I'm eating there thinking that somebody raised their hand or somebody came and we just said, how are you doing? And sent them out the door. Oh, no, no, this is too important for that. And so we always give the invitation, come, come, come to Jesus, come to the cross, come and get your sins forgiven, come and join his church, come and turn your life around if you've made a mess of it, because the grace of God is greater than any mess we ever made, isn't it? Come. Won't you stand to your feet with me right now? Our heads are bowed.